0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I spoke with Professor Levy Gibbs of Dartmouth College about his new book, Song King, Connecting People, Places, and Past in Contemporary China, recently published with the University of Hawaii Press as part of the Music and Performing Arts of Asia and the Pacific series. Song King examines the life and music of Wang Xiangrong, a famous folk song king of Western China, as he uses music to mediate between different places and different temporalities in Western China and beyond. Our conversation was really fascinating for the ways that we looked at how Wang Xiangrong simultaneously is folk and elite, the ways in which he uses and modulates his repertoire between different performances, and the ways that that creates song worlds for his audiences. I hope you'll join me in listening as, as I talk with Professor Levy Gibbs. Thank you. Levy, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so Levy, I guess to start off, I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about you and, and let our listeners know a little, bit about, a little bit more about you. What's your folklore origin story?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, and it's kind of tied up in how this book came to be. Um, so I'll try to give a sort of brief version of that. Um, But basically, uh, I first saw a concert of the singer that I ended up writing the book about in the summer of 1999. Um, It was the summer right after my freshman year in college. Hard to believe it's 20 years ago, almost. Um, And I was just really blown away by his voice and what I felt was kind of uh, the authenticity of his, the feeling expressed in the song at the time. And so I um, bought a CD CD and I um, tried to kind of learn the songs, uh, even though I didn't know the dialect or anything. Um, And then over the years, um, he kept uh, appearing in different parts of my life. I was just like very interested. I just like kind of fascinated by his story. Um, And so That fall, I did a sophomore year abroad at the Shanghai Conservatory, and one of our classes was on uh, regional culture, uh, regional Chinese culture through folk song. um, And we learned some of his songs. And then later, uh, the following summer, I was doing research for my senior thesis, and I interviewed some retired folk song collectors in Xi'an. And uh, one of them had discovered the singer. um, And later, uh i had the opportunity in 2006 to go to a a conference in this area in northern shanxi province um, and was able to interview him and then i've gone back several times since Um, but i I, I knew i wanted to do this project and so when i was looking at different graduate programs um, i considered doing you know ethnomusicology or cultural anthropology but really um folklore um of stood out in that it allowed me to be able to focus on an individual artist um, and also individual performances Um, and at the same time it gave me this foundation in performance theory that addressed a lot of the genres that i was looking at so not just um, folk songs but like uh, personal narratives and speeches Um, this is a singer who likes to talk a lot and is very eloquent Um, And then so kind of looking at different kind of parallel narratives between the narrative of the song, the narrative that he speaks on stage when you interview him about his life. Um, And at the same time, um, working in a folklore program um, allowed me to think about what I was seeing in a broader context. So there would be people not just working on folklore in different parts of China, but from around the world uh, who might be looking at similar issues um, in terms of narrative and expressive culture. And I feel like that helped me to um, situate what I was doing in that kind of broader context.
0: Great. So I guess, you know, this, this book has uh, has its focus on this one singer Wang Xiangrong, and and from this area of northern China, and I think perhaps our listeners won't be so familiar with either. And uh, I guess maybe th- one of the best places to start is who is Wang Xiangrong.
1: That is a great question. Um, so he is has become known as um, the folk song king of northern Shanxi province. That I'll talk about that. Shanxi province is kind of northern central slash northwest China. Um, For those listeners who are familiar with the Terracotta Warriors in Xi'an, that is in the same province, the central part of it. So this is a bit to the north of that. Um, In an area that is near the intersection of the Yellow River and the Great Wall, and to the north of it is um, Inner Mongolia, which is the northernmost region of China. Um, So he... Uh, has become known both as the on King of northern Shanxi province and also the on King of western China. There are other on Kings of western China, I should mention. Um, but his life is a very interesting example of how one becomes an iconic singer, um, a representative singer. Uh, he spent his childhood Uh, in a small mountain village near the intersection of the Great Wall and the Yellow River. He was born in 1952, which is just after the founding of the People's Republic in 1949. So his life kind of parallels China's rise in an interesting way. Um, And during the course of his career, um, his life and his songs and performances have come to highlight various facets of social identity in contemporary China. Um, So, After he won a string of regional contests in the late 1970s um, and then a national contest in Beijing in 1980, uh, which at that time, he met Deng Xiaoping. Um, uh, After that, he was hired by a regional song and dance troupe and traveled on regional, national and international tours. He's performed in Europe and the US. Um, And later he uh, relocated to the provincial capital of Xi'an and there has assumed uh, positions of power in several associations. He was selected uh, as a national level representative transmitter for the intangible cultural heritage of northern Shanxi folk songs in 2009. Uh, And in recent years, he has appeared on nationally televised Chinese New Year galas. He um, has served as a judge in TV singing contests. Um, And he's also acted in television and film uh, since the 1980s. So um, one of his more famous appearances was as um, Mao Zedong's horse groom in a a, a TV production about Mao's time in northern Shanxi. so that's a, just a sort of summary of his life.
0: What a life! I mean, he's sort of done it all, um, and I guess I guess that kind of leads me to my next question. I think this book was really interesting in part because you talk about singers, and I, I think a lot of your theory is developed around this idea that folk singers, in particular, are both folk and elite, and you know, I think I think that from a Western perspective, I'm not sure that that's necessarily something people necessarily associate with folk song. Uh, I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about how a singer, how a folk singer like Wang Xiaorong can be both folk and elite.
1: That's a really good question. Um, So I, it kind of ties into this idea of song king and song queen, which are are Chinese terms for um, representative singers. You'll have like song king of a particular region or an area or sometimes the song king or song queen of a particular genre but the genres are associated with particular regions so there's always a kind of um, representation of a place and a group of people Um, and what what's interesting about these kind of iconic singers is that they do have this kind of dual identity. So if they're representing the people, they have to be part of the people. So um, this singer would talk about how, you know, he's still a common person, a regular guy. Um, But at the same time, there has to be a reason why they're able to be these kind of focal representative singers. And that's the kind of elite part of it. Um, and, And that kind of dual identity. Um, goes back to you have these kind of earlier legends of song gods and song goddesses in parts of China who, um, you know, come to a place and teach people how to sing and they're kind of become uh, representative singers of an area, sometimes through kind of song battles, like rap battle type situations. Um, and And they also, if you look at their stories, you know, they'll have alternative narratives of like, they were born as a peasant, or they were born as the daughter of the emperor, you know, something. So it's it's kind of hybrid identity that sort of bridges um, a rural common populace with a sort of elite centers of power type populace. And I think that allows them to be able to travel between groups, um, which is another sort of theme that I look at is how um, in order to become representative of larger and larger, um, places and, um, identities, a singer has to be able to pivot to kind of, um, cater to multiple groups in order to sort of expand their representative reach. Um, so all of that ties into the dual identity, I think.
0: Right. Very cool. Um, and, and I think that'd be, that's, that's certainly something that, that seems to make again, Wang Xiangrong in these sort of folk song kings and queens, such powerful figures to, to study, right. Particularly in the context of China. Mm-hmm. Very neat. Um, so finally, before we, um, before we get onto the book itself or more deeply into the book itself, as somebody who's finishing his, or trying to finish his own book manuscript, I was impressed by sort of the presentation that you use, where you have song texts in English, pinyin romanization, and Chinese characters quoted in full. You have a number of photos, quotes of your conversations with Wang Xiangrong, and and song recordings freely available on Amazon. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the decisions surrounding this, and particularly the companion recordings.
1: So, I should make clear that the companion recordings, th- that's actually Wong's uh, CD that was published in 2006. Um, so a lot of the songs that I talk about in the book are available on his CD. Some of them are other songs. Um, but what I try to do with the, um, the English translation, the pronunciation, and the characters is to make it... Um, easy for different audiences to follow along. So if you read Chinese, you can see the Chinese characters. If you don't, um, the pronunciation helps you at least follow along in the song and it's paralleled with the translation. So you can kind of see what he's singing at each point in the song. Um, And I I mentioned the track numbers for the CD. Um, But I did uh, try several different kind of structures. for that, and I think it's, it's, it's uh, an interesting challenge working with um, texts that are not commonly known, you know, it's not like I'm talking about a, a play by Shakespeare that I can just refer to because everyone should have read that. Um, I, I tried at one point putting the songs uh, in an appendix at the end, um, but I really ended up feeling that it has to be kind of in the heart of it so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, and and likewise with uh, the quotes from interviews with Wong, um, he is again such a a great speaker. He's very smart. Um, and I wanted to let as much as possible his words to shine through, um, even though a lot of um, the the some of the theory that I add in is um, more of my own. I, I also went back and forth between trying to kind of make it just about his expression of himself and then, you know, in the end it's a conversation. So it's a conversation between um the conversations I had with him, with his songs, and then with different um other books and theory that I've I've worked with. Um so yeah, that the end product is is uh um, something of multiple revisions, I should say.
0: Well, it ends up really nice and looks very natural and easy. Um, thinking about my own multilingual productions, how you use the, sort of the full extent of what we can do with media and print. It's really nice. Um, so moving on to chapter one, which is entitled the meaning of life. Um, in this, you discuss singer heroes, and stories of singer heroes, and how elements of these seem to resonate with Wang Xiangrong's own story. A singer's success, you you suggest, is, quote, a result of his or her ability to engage with different others through song in mutually defining conversations. Um, How does this work? Uh, How does this work? And are there any good examples that you can give?
1: Hmm. Yeah, so what was interesting, to me is how um, different elements of Wang's life resonate, not only with the uh, life stories of other contemporary singers in China and also around the world, um, but also these kind of uh, legends of these song gods and goddesses in the past, that they have similar elements um, in the stories um, that I think reflect. Uh, these social tensions that these singers are moving from often kind of a rural village type context to, um, other, other geographical contexts. So sometimes to new places, sometimes to capitals of nations. Um, and in that, and, and those different places have different kind of, um, ethical standards and just sort of unspoken norms. And I think that, um, the singers, by crossing between those geographical spaces, bring these kind of social tensions that otherwise um, are not always sort of brought to the fore. Um, and so, if you look at um, the the stories of these um, older song gods and goddesses, you know sometimes uh, there's one who um, is this kind of very uh flirtatious uh guy who um flirts with this um uh an actual goddess and then gets punished for it and so there's kind of stories of um sexual transgression and things like that or in other ones there's things that have to do with sort of class tensions um there's a song battle that involves um you know uh sort of the elite of local society and then the sort of uh, common people. Um, So they bring those kind of issues to the fore. And if you look at the narratives of Wang, Wang's narrative um, also has multiple versions. Sometimes it's told as a sort of rags to riches story. Uh, One of the documentaries about him, the title was um, uh, From Shepherd Boy to Fokusong King. um, And it talks about how, you know, he had all these, jobs as like a coal miner and a peasant and a farmer um, and he's become this you know wealthy famous great singer so it's this rags to riches story but you also find different narratives about um things like uh his love life his marriage um and and taken in the context of other singers lives you see that a lot in you know like country singers or um blues singers that there, there is this kind of public interest in their romantic life. Um, and often the sort of choices they make are scrutinized and reflect kind of tensions, underlying tensions in society as society is kind of changing or, or maybe sort of what I said about the different kind of unspoken norms and different geographical places within say a nation. Um, so I think that that, um, aspect of, of the singers is sort of what's, what captivates people, what, um, people find so intriguing about their lives. And that's sort of what I wanted to talk about in that chapter.
0: Yeah, it really comes out, uh, has me thinking other Chinese stories like Liu Sanjie, right? Yeah. Sister Liu. And, um, so yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of similarity. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. And then moving to chapter two. Um, you talked about Wang Xiaorong's education in song, Uh, particularly with reference, it seems, to banquet singers, spirit mediums, and actors at temple fairs. How did the songs and singers of his youth help shape his conceptions of what being a Song King meant?
1: That's a great question. Um, So what was interesting to me is he, in our many conversations, he kept talking about how, as a child, um, there was no no concept of singing as a professional career, like making money off of it. He said, you know, everybody sang when I was a child; like it was just more common, um, and and there wasn't this idea of this kind of like song king in in the sense that it came to be later. Um, but so what I looked at, but he did talk about these um, memorable, influential individual singers in his childhood. Um, And so I wanted to look at what he might have learned from those singers based on his comments about them um, and his discussions. Um, And so a couple of things that I noticed, um, and so his his village is this um, very small village that doesn't even appear on uh, maps or hadn't until perhaps recently. it, it had, I think, 60 people back when in the 50s when he was a child. When I visited it in 2012, there were only three elderly people left there, and that was it. Um, and a couple of the sort of uh, people that he remembers from childhood, there was this uh, spirit medium that was called Eldest Grandfather um, who... Um, had the ability, was according to local tradition, was chosen by the gods and could do these rituals where he would invite local gods, some of whom were um, said to be ancestors who had uh, of, so everyone in the village is surnamed Wang. Um, and so there would be a God whose surname was Wang who was supposed to be, um, uh, had had turned into a, a uh, a spirit or a god. Um, And in the rituals, the spirit medium would use song to invite um, that god and other gods um, to the village, offer them um, food and wine and tea and stuff like that, and then ask them for help with um, illnesses. If a child was ill, if someone had had an accident, um, they would ask for cures. And then also through song, the medium would uh, sing in the God's voice um, and give a kind of uh, Chinese herbal remedy, you know, find this herb and this and this and mix it together, um, and then this will happen, you know, so he would explain what happened, the origins of the illness and then how to cure it. Um, And so from that singer, he would talk about um, the singer's authority, you know, he said, Like, he learned to sing these songs, but he says, you know, I can't, I just did it for fun as a game, but I was always aware that to do those songs the real way, you had to be chosen by the gods, you had to have that authority. And so the question of how do you build the authority to represent whether it be gods or villagers or uh, an entire province or a nation is still this question of um, building that kind of, Narrative of why does the singer, uh, why is the singer authorized to sing this particular song and represent this particular group of people, um, and at the same time, um, the the songs from his youth um, were also very uh, situated in the local topography. They would refer to the the mountain and the ravine, the mountain where his village was located, and the ravine next to it. Um, and so there was very much a connection between place and song, and that is something that I noticed that he um, developed when he later was kind of uh, singing and creating and adapting songs that he said to be were were region representing, representing northern Shanxi or representing China. He was very much thinking about how the images of landscapes and nature in the songs and the characters um, who are singing in the songs um, had to be connected to these larger regions. He he called it like expanding the song. Um, So that is something, you know, coming from a small village to become a representative of a nation, um, I think that he learned in this education through song. Um, And then regarding the sort of local um there there was a local tr- tradition of uh folk opera um called two person opera arentai in in chinese and that um that was a semi kind of professional there were singers who would perform at festivals and they were kind of the closest thing to like a professional singer um that he had and you know he did study with one of those singers um, and kind of pursued, he was very much uh, into that. He he recalls when he was a child, um, how he would stand on his bed um, and, and use that as a stage for his friends and like perform on, you know, standing on the bed as if it were a stage. Um, so I think that that was another sort of influence from his childhood.
0: Oh, that's great. And you know it's interesting that you mention sort of this idea of sort of moving scales between sort of local and regional and national because it seems that that's the topic also of your next chapter, <clears throat> chapter three, representing the region. You look at Wang as a regional representative, so so leaving the um, leaving the village. Uh, which, just to clarify, three people in the village.
1: That's when I visited in two thousand twelve. So I don't know now there might not be anyone.
0: That's incredible that as in sort of rural exodus story that's
1: and and that's very that's very common in that region so I've visited other villages where you'll see very like elderly people and maybe like baby like very young people because all of the school age college age kids are in the cities and then the older working age people are also in the cities um, so that that seems to be very common in that area.
0: And it's not sea- seasonal migrant or anything like that? It's it's a full depopulation?
1: I mean, I don't know. They might come back and visit during Chinese New Year, but it's, um, yeah, it seems to be pretty persistent.
0: Okay, wow. All right, so anyways, um, sorry, I just had to clarify. Um, moving on with this sort of idea of representing the region, you talk about... Um, beginning with the period when Wang went to work at the Yulin Folk Arts Troupe, Mm -hmm. which Yulin is the local sort of prefectural capital, right?
1: Right. That's correct.
0: Okay. And you sort of talk about sort of the requirements of this jump in scale to a, to a city, um, and, and sort of now representing not just the village, but the region, um, and can you talk about how folk songs have been adapted to the stage more generally, and specifically how Wang was able to represent his region so capably?
1: Yeah, so um, he talks about in when he joined this regional song and dance troupe in the 80s, um, how he felt that there weren't enough uh, songs that could truly represent this broader region and its history, um, the purpose of this song and dance troupe was essentially to advertise the region um, for investment and economic purposes, just to kind of make the region more well known. Um, and so it needed he needed kind of songs that were worthy of the large scale stage in like a big auditorium or um, television performances or things like that. Um, And he felt that, you know, even though he knew a lot of songs from his childhood and growing up, um, a lot of them were sort of tied to what he called, you know, smaller context. So there would be songs for like a Chinese New Year's festival in, you know, a small village. Um, And so he gives this really interesting example of a um, song that was, uh, from this kind of village festival. Um, it's a very, um, you know, it has a very upbeat kind of quick tempo. It's very, it's supposed to be humorous. It's, um, there would be a man dressed up as an old man with like a fake beard, um, and in kind of a papier-mâché boat. Um, uh, it was called Boat on Dry Land is the sort of genre. Um, and the song would be about, Um, the old man taking a younger woman on the boat with him down south um, and, you know, hoping that romance would ensue, um, only to find that when they get to the south, uh, she runs off with a younger man and leaves him in the cold. Um, And so um, he he pointed out that song and he said, you know, that is a very uh, local context. That doesn't work for, you know, the big region, right? Um, But what he did is he adapted the melody from that song. Um, and, and what he did is he, um, he said that he slowed it down and he turned it into um, a kind of more dramatic, stoic, um, majestic kind of uh, melody. Um, and then he transformed the Boatman into this kind of uh, heroic, uh, um, pensive, uh, almost like leader of the people Um, type uh, image, so it's still a boatman, but in in his new song, um, which was uh, performed for um, the opening sequence of a TV drama about revolutionary China, and also he performed it on stage, um, the boatman is, you know, leading this boatload of people that maybe is a symbol of the region or the nation, it's a bit ambiguous and purposefully so, um, he's leading them through the crashing waves and the beating sun and the storm across the Yellow River to the to the other shore. And so it's just interesting. He talks about how um, all of those changes, slowing it down, changing the lyrics, changing the image of the boatman, uh, resulted in what he called expanding the song and making it uh, region representing. And... Um, if you look at other um, more widely known um, iconic songs in China, for example, The East is Red is a very famous one. Um, there there are stories of how songs like that um, also uh, were kind of expanded. So maybe in the earlier version of The East is Red, um, which is about... Um, praising Mao and the Communist Party and that kind of thing. In the earlier versions, they compare Mao to an oil lamp that lights up the house um, and to talk about sort of his illuminating um, influence on the people. But then there was a lot of discussion about that, like, oh, that's too small. That's only one house. You know, we need something, uh, an image that's bigger, of bigger scope, so they change it to the sun because the sun uh, not only you know, brightens all of China, but the entire world, it has this more kind of universal presence to it. So there's different ways that sort of um, metaphors or images um, are are transferred to be able to capture broader and broader representational bases. Um, so that's something that's interesting that I thought uh, happened with, with that song that he talks about.
0: Right. And it's just really interesting to me, just sort of, all of these regional moves and, and how intentional they are. Um, and I guess, um, in some ways these can even go from, from local to regional to international, even chapter four, uh, which you entitled culture paves the way, uh, looks at a joint project between a Chinese coal company and the American Dow chemical chemical company in Midland, Michigan. Uh, can you briefly discuss this event uh, and what happened in Wang's songs as he performs to an international audience and how culture paves the way for relationships between larger enti- entities in our current era of global capitalism?
1: Sure. So um, the, the slogan for this region, so different regions in China have had different slogans um, uh, for kind of economic development. So the one in Yuling was... Um, culture paves the way, economics comes to sing the opera. Um, And what happened was uh, there is a large coal industry that has sort of risen in the last uh, couple of decades in this area. Um, And there was a point where they were looking to put together a joint venture with Dow Chemical Company. Um, And part of that uh, involved... uh, a, a cultural exchange um, and in the cultural exchange um, Dow Chemicals headquarters is in Midland, Michigan, as you mentioned and they um, they fund a lot of kind of local theaters and there's a museum. So in the museum they had a, a four-month celebration of Chinese culture um, and the culminating event for that was a performance by Wang's troupe, uh, the troupe with which he worked. Um, and what's interesting, and, and this was sort of um, meant to share Chinese culture with Midwesterners in the US, um, but also to kind of highlight um, the local culture of this region and to let people know more about Yuling, because that's the purpose. Um, and And I'm guessing that that, you know, is sort of a cultural exchange that's happening as this economic uh, arrangement is being worked out as well. Um, And what's interesting in terms of Wang's performance is he said uh, that when he performs abroad, he always chooses local uh, love songs. He never would sing like a, you know, in China, sometimes he will sing a song like the East is Red that is kind of more like patriotic. Or nationalistic, um, and so in the sort of international cultural exchange context, he said, "What's important is to uh, establish sort of the common humanity between uh, what I'm representing and and the audience." Um, so everyone, you know, everyone understands love. Um, the the song that he sang was a duet um, called "The Flowers Bloom in May." Um, it's a riddle song with him. And another uh, a, a woman, uh, a female singer. Um, and so basically a back and forth asking, you know, what kind of flower blooms in January? What kind of flower blooms in uh, March?" Uh, and then answering. And then uh, it's a a sort of metaphor for the blossoming love um, between the couple, but it also, in that context, I think, served nicely as a metaphor for the blossoming relationship between two nations, two regions within those nations, two companies within those regions. Um, so there's a lot, a, a lot of nice kind of um, uh, parallels there. Um, and it's just interesting to me that, that, that the song he's singing is, is from that folk drama genre, folk opera genre from his youth in that village. Um, and, and he's used songs like that um, at different points in his career um, and they just keep kind of working for different contexts, which is interesting.
0: Absolutely. And I also think it's interesting the way it's sort of, he goes more local to become more global, if you will. So, so the songs are more local when he goes into those global or international situations, um, yeah. which I just think is sort of an interesting phenomenon.
1: Yeah. And I think there is, I've seen different scholars talking about that recently, that there's kind of this back and forth between, you know, everywhere is becoming the same. And then this desire to distinguish a locality and like what makes us special. Uh, You want to be able to connect to make yourself important and relevant. But you also need to kind of distinguish um, what is like unique about yourself. So I think it's a, a clever way to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that's, I mean, that last little point is also particularly interesting uh, in light of the following chapter. You sort of talking about sort of the way establishing connections with audiences. Uh, in chapter five, you actually begin with a quote from previous podcast guest, Ian Brody, and his work on stand up comedy, in which he describes the comedian as an intimate stranger who must engage with audiences across different worldviews and social identities. Uh, in this c- chapter, you're using conversations with Wong and with folk song collectors to look at the decisions that singers make to adapt performances to contexts and <clears throat> how dirty songs <laughs> created space for discussion of public morality. Can you talk a little bit about this, please?
1: Yeah. Um, So I would call them body songs because dirty implies uh, a value judgment. (laughs) um, Okay. But no, I mean, fair enough because that's how uh, they tend to be seen. But um, yeah, so it was interesting to me with regard to Ian Brody's book on on stand-up comedy. um, You know, he's talking about a lot of what he was saying about stand-up comics kind of resonated with what I was seeing with singers, um, which is that they have to... um, stand that kind of on the edge of a group and tell the group about itself, or to be kind of a border walker between that group and other groups. Um, so you have to be close enough to kind of be taken into the conversation, to be part of the broader, to be one with the audience, but at the same time, um, distant enough to kind of be up there on stage and and justify why you're up there on stage. Um, so, the the impetus for that chapter is that I, I found other versions of of the song that I mentioned earlier. So the the one where you had the the village boatman song, and then the sort of iconic stoic boatman rep- region representing song that he did for the TV series. Then there was a third version of the song that he would, which was a body version um, that he would sometimes perform. Uh, for groups of friends, or sometimes if a, a folk song scholar like a chinese scholar came and asked for that type of song, he would sing this um and what was interesting is that i it, it as I talked to him about um those types of songs um he had a lot he had thought about this a lot and he he talked about how um you really have to gauge your audience and there's there are different um expectations depending on different types of audiences um and uh if uh if you blow it by singing a song that's perceived as inappropriate with an audience then you like lose you 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 lose them and then that hurts your career so that ability to uh, accurately get your audience um quickly um is something that's very important for being able to negotiate um the multiple kind of social spheres spheres that a representative singer has to do. Um, and what's interesting is that I think he he if you look at the sort of uh sequence of performances, a uh, sequence of songs and speech within a particular performance that he does. I think he's doing something very interesting that is um he will sing something that is kind of more familiar to the audience like hey this is this like familiar song that everybody knows and then he will like sing another one that's like a little um unfamiliar not totally exotic but something a little more distant um for example he will uh and some local occasions he would sing like a revolutionary song from the Cultural Revolution that was familiar to a lot of audiences, but he would sing it in Mongolian because he has this whole thing about how he spent time in Inner Mongolia. And um, so it, it's something that sounds familiar, but is like also like othered. Um, and, and I think he kind of, over the course of a performance, will kind of shift closer and further away from the audience um, subtly to kind of have them feel where they are it's like oh because i think if it's if it's all like too familiar it would just be boring and if it's all like too different um they just wouldn't get it and then he would lose them but by kind of being able to hover at that line at the border um i think that is where you're really like helping people to kind of position themselves in a changing world um that was the sort of um, idea that I had from that chapter.
0: Oh uh, great. And I think I think it's an idea that comes even more explicit in the following chapter. We are talking about sort of a performance in Wang's home region, with this te- uh, with this shifting between familiar and exotic material. Um, how do audiences engage with with that shift? Um, you, you sort of just told us a little bit about how Wang does it. And how he sees it but how do audiences engage with this with the with this shifting material and how does it help further create his sort of public uh persona
1: yeah that's a good question um so it sometimes is um hard to tell i mean they they get very excited you know if there is uh one of his iconic songs, you will just see like, if it's a wedding or something, there will be like all of these people with their iPhones, you know, hovered around taking, you know, videos and that kind of thing. And sometimes they'll, they'll sing along with parts of it. Um, what was interesting uh, were a couple of occasions where he was performing in his home region um, and I was with him. And, uh, you know, he's trying to kind of juggle multiple narratives about you know his life his rags to riches story together with the kind of rags to riches story of the region how the region used to be kind of invisible like other parts of china didn't know about it and now it's become uh, very prominent and you know wealthy um and then he you know tries to position his own narrative in that and how he uh through his songs has helped kind of bring pride and fame to the region um so part of that narrative um he would turn to have me perform after him but like introduce it as evidence of um the global attraction of this local culture uh he's like look you know this guy came all the way from America to study this stuff, and look how he sings the songs, and look how, um, you know, he tried to use that as a sort of um, um, evidence of of the attraction of this local um, culture. And sometimes, you know, there would be, if it was like a business opening there was one time where uh, this local boss of this business, you know, got up and said, you know, he would ask for stuff like, uh, he wanted me to, to translate some of the local songs into English and sing them spontaneously like that. Um, or, you know, they would want to... I think they were kind of, in retrospect, I think it was sort of playing with this concept of identity, like, you know, hearing the songs by someone from who stayed in the village their entire life is different from hearing the songs from someone like Wong, like the singer who has been abroad and received acclaim and come back. Um, that is, has this kind of additional layer to it. And then having him bring me and sing, uh, I almost felt like in retrospect that I became one of his kind of sung persona, like a, uh, I was able to, do something that he needed at that point in the performance um, just based on what I look like and my ability to sing. Um, and so I think that those different kind of layers of um, how, how different sort of personal narratives and performances come together in, in these kind of interesting ways play into that um, negotiation of identity that, that audiences are seeking.
0: Right. And I think for any of us who have spent a lot of time in China, that sort of getting called up to sing is an experience that we'll know, but it also seems to be doing something quite specific in this, in your case. And I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Like, I feel it, as you know, um, a lot of um People in general and scholars, when you go to China, you know there will often be kind of banquet events where part of it is you know going around the table and having people sing a song or do a poem, and it's kind of um, contributing something to this sense of commonality that is the event, um, and trying to bring s- some element of your own perspective to it, um, but sort of building that kind of group feeling together through the c- contribution of these different, um, poems and songs and things like that.
0: Absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> in chapter seven, you move from a, a very local performance in chapter six to a very national one. Uh, and you're looking at this one very famous song, the infinite bends of the yellow river. And it begins with this, Wonderful description of Wang's performance at CCTV's Spring Festival Gala, um, which is uh, for listeners who may be unfamiliar. It's a massive uh, television variety show that gets live broadcast across China and around the world uh, to uh, welcome in the Spring Festival and the Chinese New Year. Um, in in this In this narrative and in this chapter, you're bringing you kind of bring this international figure to something that is simultaneously local to his home area, regional to the Shanxi area he calls home, and an important national symbol at a time of great transition. Um, and I, I wonder if you could just sort of describe this a little bit more. I remember seeing you give a talk about the infinite bends of the Yellow River at a conference once. Um, and I was wondering if you could just sort of talk a little bit more about, about this performance and, and, its, and its place in the show and um, what it's doing uh, in in connect connecting past, present, and future.
1: Sure. Um, so uh, one of the things that I'm trying to talk about in that chapter is how he fuses together these parallel narratives. Um, some of which I've mentioned already the kind of rags to riches story of his own life and how he became famous through song, and then the turn from the invisibility of his home village that didn't appear on a map um, and and the region uh, more broadly to its kind of hyper visibility now you know with the rise of the coal industry it's referred to as china's kuwait Um, and then that is also paralleled with china's rise um, over the past few decades Um, and all of that um, gets layered into, I think, the the narrative of the song, which is deceptively simple. It's a two stanza, um, essentially a riddle song. Um, and the first stanza asks these questions, how many bends are there in the Yellow River? How many boats are on those bends? How many boatmen, or how many, yeah, like how many boatmen and how many oars and that kind of thing. And then the second stanza answers each of those questions with the, the number 99 which in Chinese signifies an infinite number. So there are 99 bends in the Yellow River, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And what's interesting is that looking at the history of the song, um, it it was first composed in 1920, uh, which was during this kind of um, uh, intellectual renaissance in in called the May 4th period in China, um, which was a period right after the end of the the final dynasty when a lot of intellectuals and and writers um, were were arguing about and considering, you know, um, chi- things about Chinese history and where China was headed in the future, and so in that context, the sort of questioning, um, it, it's kind of questioning the past and kind of questioning China's present and thereby um, the future, because the Yellow River is very emblematic of of. Chinese culture as a whole. Um, And then, uh, so it just started with those questions, but then sometime in the 1980s, they added the second stanza. um, And then that becomes this kind of affirmative answer. Uh, There are infinite uh, number of bends in the Yellow River. It's kind of, and the way that he sings it um, adds to these narratives. So he will. walk out onto the stage at the beginning of the song, and there's a kind of instrumental, it's pre-recorded, and there's this instrumental um, interlude at the beginning. Um, And he walks out to the center of the stage and he looks back at whatever the backdrop is. And he performs this at um, a variety of events. So there will be business openings, there will be weddings, there will be um, Chinese New Year performances, but there's always some kind of backdrop. So it might say like the wedding or the name of the business or whatever. And he's looking back at it. Um, and then as he starts singing, do you know how many bends there are? He turns around and faces the audience. Um, and, and when he does that, you know, at the beginning you only see the back of his head. So there's this kind of anonymity and invisibility to it. And then he turns and you're like, oh, it's the song King of Western China. There's that kind of hyper visibility just like you see in the region and in China. Um, And then as he's singing the song, when he gets to the second verse, he starts like uh, raising his head. Sometimes there will be like a walkway that goes into the center of the audience and he starts walking forward into the audience. So he's bringing this kind of sense of, he's going from this kind of connection to the past and bringing it into the center of the audience and sort of projecting it towards this future as he's singing about the kind of success, which is the 99 um, bends of the yellow river. Um, and that narrative of sort of, um, fusing together the past, present and future really ties into these kind of, um, uh, transformative events. So, um, if it's a new year's performance, you know, it's like saying goodbye to the old year and hello to the new year. If it's a wedding, it's joining together these two people into a new, kind of social unit, if it's a business opening, it's giving birth to this new business. That kind of narrative of where have we come from and where are we going proves seems to prove really useful in that kind of um, uh, event. Um, and at the same time, it his performance of it, because that song has been performed so many times over the years by him and by other singers as well, Um, it really connects these kind of events to this larger stream of history. And I think it helps um, people in the audience to kind of connect that sense to this larger stream as well. Um, And what's interesting is is when he's singing uh, the second part, he says, you know, the first part is, do you know how many bands? And the second part is, I know. Uh, But when he's singing the I know, the audience is like singing along with them so they're singing i and there's this kind of collective we happening um and so there, there's this sort of um juxtaposition of the individual and the collective you know he's this individual singer but he's representing this larger group and then i think that's kind of modeling how um one might sort of socialized personal experience. So when the audience is singing along and singing, I I know, they're also kind of joining their narratives into these other narratives, or, or at least seeing how that would be. I think that song allows us to um, experience things in an as if kind of manner.
0: Really fascinating and what an amazing way to sort of end up the body of the book. Um, Following this, you sort of you have this sort of conclusionary section or this epilogue where you talk about um, the concept of song kings and queens that you'd advanced at the at the beginning, um, particularly in the perspective of world music. How do you envision the place of song king and queen and this concept in world music?
1: So, what I try to argue in the epilogue is that even though the terms song king and song queen are uh, Chinese, Um, I think that um, although in Chinese they are often applied to singers from other genres, um, I think that if we take um, that idea of song king and song queen as a singer who's representative of larger groups and we take a more kind of global view of these terms, it really highlights what's happening with singers around the world who move from rural to urban landscapes, uh, transforming themselves and the local traditions they carry with them into uh, symbols of larger regions, of nations, of peoples, of epochs. Um, and, and in the process of that transition, the singers are physically embodying mediation between groups through their travels through their lives, through their performances and the songs they sing. Um, and at the same time, as that's happening, the events from their life stories um, spark public interest and they become discursive sites for social tensions as people strive to redefine themselves amidst the constantly changing world. Um, tying into what I talked about, the rags to riches stories and the sort of romance stories. Um, and more globally, uh, many of these singers live during transitional times um, their lives coincide with the rise of new nations and historical periods. Um, for example, there's a singer known. There was a singer known as the voice of Egypt, Unkutum, um um, who brought a rural art form to urban Cairo and then connected a national Egyptian identity to the surrounding Arab world through her performances. Um, in Japan, you have the Queen of Enka, Misora Hibari, um, who became a national icon in the years of post-war Japan. Um, And then the list goes on and on. There's a Scottish folk singer, Jeannie Robertson, who represented Scottish traveler culture um, to large audiences. In America, we might think of people like Bob Dylan, Lead Belly, Pete Seeger, um, and more. Um, Each of these singers' careers um, involved a movement in time and space between the context in which the performer first encountered their songs and the places and people to whom he or she later performed them. And and through those performances, the singers were able to uh mediate between ethnic groups, socioeconomic classes, localities, regions, nations, and eras. Um and so I think that Wang's example gives a really uh a, a good um insight into part of this process that I think we can think about in the context of other cases um, where As singers speak to larger and larger and more diverse social spheres, um, they learn to pivot their presentation of self, um, gloss over the heterogeneity of different peoples and places in favor of a kind of symbolic unity. Um, And all of that, preferably, of course, with the singer, him or herself at the center.
0: Amazing um and seems that seems really relevant uh given our current moment feels like there's a lot of transition going on <laughs> um, well, unfortunately, I think that's just about all the time uh we have or at least that we've taken up all of the time that I feel comfortable taking up of yours um before we let you go, though, I was wondering if you could tell us what uh what you're working on now, what's up next
1: sure thanks um So I'm working on two projects right now. One is a edited volume about the cultural politics of singers and songs around the world, Um, sort of expanding on uh, some of the ideas from the book's epilogue. So I want to kind of have this edited volume with different scholars, um, explore ways in which singers and songs of different genres have come to represent regions, nations, and historical moments while simultaneously becoming sites of public interest through which to consider questions of individual and collective identities. So that's one project. Um, And the other one is um, my second book, Monograph, um, which is on regional stories as ethical conversations. Um, The moment I'm calling it A Region of Rebels, Visions of the Yellow Earth in the Chinese Moral Landscape. Um, And I'm looking at novels, TV dramas, musicals, and films set again, in this region, spanning from its ancient past to the revolutionary period in the 1930s and 40s, and up to um, recent novels about the rise of regional coal coal bosses, whose overnight wealth and power puts um, mainstream narratives of economic development in tension with concerns about political corruption and environmental degradation. Um, And what's kind of interesting to me in that project is how regional characters have this kind of hybrid nature, they're, they belong to other parts of one's own national community. Um, and so when they attempt to resolve social problems that are shared by national audiences, um, their actions often appear kind of ethically ambiguous because they're caught between overlapping moral orders of regions and the nation. Um, so I'm hoping to um, focus on how regional stories juxtapose these different scales of ethical judgment, um, and in doing so, force audiences to compare contrasting perspectives and thereby strengthen their own moral imagination.
0: Sounds really amazing. Uh, can't see, can't wait to see them coming out. Um, thanks very much, Levy, uh, for your time today and for telling us about this new book of yours.
1: Thanks a lot for having me, Tim. I appreciate it.